Oh, hey, everybody. Welcome to the very first episode of Ask Worship Sound Guy. I'm Johnny, the co-founder of Worship Sound Guy, and I'm so glad we're getting to talk today. So first things first, why the heck are we starting an audio podcast? Aren't there already a bunch of great live sound podcasts out there? The answer is, of course, yes, there are a bunch of really good ones. But we thought we might do something a little bit different with this one and specifically focus uh, not just on what we want to talk about, but what you want to learn. So uh, today you're going to hear some questions that got asked by members of our Worship Sound Guy students Facebook group. And uh, these are all students in our courses and part of our community. And they're awesome people with just a passion for making their churches sound really, really excellent. And Every once in a while we get questions in the group that maybe deserve a longer answer or a a bigger answer than what we can type out. So that's what this podcast is going to be for. We're going to be polling our community, asking what you guys want to learn about, and then just talking about it. We'll have some discussion with uh, me, Johnny, and uh, the other co-founder of Worship Sound Guy, Matt. We'll also have some special guests on to talk about your questions. It's going to be really fun, but it's all going to be focused around what you want to learn. So I think it's going to be a really fun experience for the live sound community, and hopefully this will be a great resource for you to learn. First, let's take care of a little bit of business. Since this is a brand new podcast, we need your help. That's right. We need you to go rate and review and subscribe. Those three things are going to help out tremendously getting this podcast out into the community. If you're listening right now, chances are you're kind of already a member of our community, so we want you to share. Uh, So wherever you download your podcast, listen to your podcast, whether that's iTunes or Stitcher or somewhere else, uh, you can always leave a review on those platforms. So please do that. It would really help us out and it'll help other people find this podcast. And that's what we're all about. We want to spread this knowledge and make sure that everybody's church has amazing sound. I'm so pumped to read each and every one of your reviews. And uh, who knows, maybe we'll read some on the air, just kind of see what happens. It'll be fun. So right now, let's get into questions. So the first question, which we got from a bunch of people, is very timely right now, uh, in case you're listening later in the future. We're in the middle of the coronavirus outbreak at the beginning of 2020, and live streaming has been just a new reality for a lot of our churches. So uh, Brian Nielsen asked, how do you get a great live stream mix? It's definitely a hot button question right now, and uh, I've got a few tips that I think will really help. First, the biggest thing, and I'll always say this, is that source tones are the largest component in making your mix sound great. If it doesn't sound good at the source, it's not going to sound good no matter what you do to it. There's always you know, some mix magic we can throw in there and you know, fix it in the mix, but at the end of the day, if you're starting with something that actually sounds really good, your end result is going to be so much better than if you're trying to save something that doesn't sound good to start with. So why is this so important for live streaming in particular? Now, we always want to start with great source tones, but with live streaming, I think it actually matters a little bit more that your source sounds really good. When you've got, you know, a gigantic PA system in your room or even a small PA system, um, 
it's just easier to cover up when stuff doesn't sound good by using volume. It's kind of one of those things where like everything sounds awesome if you crank it loud enough. But when you've got people who are listening on tiny iPhone earbuds or on their TV soundbar or maybe just on their built-in TV speakers, something that sounds probably pretty bad and it's definitely not high volume, you've got to make a mix that sounds really great. The level that you have to mix at for your live stream, I think has to be higher quality, a better mix than what you might be able to get away with in a live room with a big PA. There's just something about hearing a big PA in like a nice room that sounds pretty good. There's like the sound of the room that can really cover up a lot of imperfections in the mix. Uh, that's kind of why like if you've ever recorded your master bus mix and then listened to it back on headphones, you go, wow, it, it sounded a lot cooler in the room than it does right now. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's just because you're listening on a big PA system when you're mixing versus listening on headphones or listening on your laptop speakers. It just doesn't sound as big. It doesn't have that weight to it that you get with a PA system. So with that in mind, we have to remember what we're mixing for, and that's a much different format of speaker than what we're used to. We're all used to mixing on PA systems, not necessarily for laptop speakers, and it's just a whole different world. So the biggest key that I've found uh, to getting a great mix that translates well and that's easy to mix to sound good on a smaller speaker set is starting with your sources. Like, Make sure that your drums are in tune. Make sure that your guitar amps are getting a good Tone, there's not any buzz going on. Make sure your mics are placed properly. It's kind of simple stuff, but it's stuff that can get overlooked in like the hustle and bustle of a Sunday morning. But when it's a live stream, you're going to hear those things and you'll notice them a lot more on smaller speakers. The second tip that I can really give for making a great sounding live stream mix is that you have to create the space. Remember, your audience isn't sitting in your auditorium anymore. They're at home in their living room or in their kitchen, and they don't have a nice sounding room to listen to like we're used to mixing in. So we have to be a lot more careful with the reverbs and the delays that we use because we're creating a space for our band and our vocalists and everything else in our mix to live. In. So we've got to make sure that it sounds good and that it sounds cohesive. And what I mean by that is that all the different spatial effects like reverb and delay need to play nicely with each other. Uh, I've heard some kind of bizarre sounding stuff like where uh, maybe the vocals have got like a super long hall reverb on them, but the drums have got a plate reverb and the guitars have got some kind of like springy surf rock spring reverb on them. And it doesn't sound like anything is in the same space. So what you're really going for when you create this space is you're trying to create a sense of togetherness with the band. You're trying to make it sound like they're a band on stage performing. Like that's kind of one of the hallmarks of a great live mix to me is it actually sounds like a band. It doesn't sound too much like a studio recording. It doesn't sound too artificial or fake. That's, that's just what I hear a lot of that uh, kind of is a red flag for me in terms of knowing that the space wasn't quite created properly. So when you're mixing, whether you're multi-tracking everything and then mixing it at home in post, or if you're mixing everything on your console, just keep in mind that the effects that you're using are probably not gonna be the same as what you might use in a typical mix in your actual sanctuary. So I know for me, I tend to lean on a lot of plate reverbs. Uh, those just sound really nice to me. Room reverbs also are one of those that has a nice ability to kind of glue things together and make them sound like they're all 
in the same room. And then with delay, one of the big things for me is making sure that I don't hear a bunch of uh, delayed sibilance. So like kind of the S sounds like you're hearing right there. I don't want to hear those, you know, ping pong around and bouncing back and forth in the delays. Uh, so I'm going to roll off the high end on those delays uh, so that I'm not hearing so much of that S coming through and then ping-ponging everywhere back and forth. Uh, so that just kind of helps add a sense of realism. It, it draws the listener into the moment, and that's really what we're doing. Which brings me to my third tip, which is remember why you're mixing. This is something that I think can kind of get away from us as church sound guys. Uh, a lot of times we'll put the sound guy part before the church part, and we'll forget that we're doing ministry, that uh, what we're doing when we mix for a live stream is we're trying to help create a moment of worship for people in their homes who, you know, we're used to gathering together, but we can't right now, and it's really hard. And so we're trying to provide uh, that some of that worship experience and just bring a sense of unity to people who might feel disunified from the church right now. And so I think Mixing with that in mind will change the way you mix. It'll change your perspective as you mix. Just if you can keep focused on that. I like to really like pray before I mix. That might seem kind of weird, but uh, I think it's an important part of preparing for what we're doing and what we're doing is ministry. So just remember that it's not always about perfecting the most amazing mix or having, you know, the best players or the best worship or, you know, the most viewers on our live stream. It's really about life change. It's about doing ministry. And I think when we forget that, it's easy to lose track that what we're doing even sitting behind a computer mixing audio can have eternal consequences. Uh, that live stream that you're mixing might be the one where someone makes a decision to follow Jesus, and that's incredible. And so I think we seem to keep our eyes focused on that more than anything else. All right, our next question comes from Kristen Winstead, who asks, do I really need a music production degree of some sort to be a good audio engineer? So my answer on that is a hard no, you do not. And that's really good news because audio engineering school is really expensive and I would know that because I went. <laughs> so uh, I am a graduate of a four-year audio engineering program. And uh, to be honest, I learned a ton. Like it was really, really good. And I'm not going to discourage anyone from going that route uh, if you want to pay for that or if you have some good scholarships. Uh, I think it's fantastic and I, I really did learn a ton from it. And it was definitely a good jump start for me career-wise too. It definitely helped me out. Um, but to be a good audio engineer, no, you absolutely don't need that. There's so many great ways to learn now. I think we're living in a time in history that's unparalleled as far as the accessibility of knowledge. I mean, we make some really great courses that I love a lot and um, a bunch of other people do too, which are awesome. Uh, there's a bunch of stuff on YouTube. We put videos on YouTube. We're making this podcast. There's you know tons of resources for people who want to be sound engineers uh, to be able to learn. Audio production is also one of those interesting industries where people love for you to take an interest in it. And uh, I know for me, like if someone comes up to me in the soundboard and goes, "Hey, I I kind of want to know what all those buttons do." I'm so excited about that. 
Like that just makes my day on a Sunday. If somebody asks me uh, something about sound or expresses an interest in it, I always try to follow up with them, get them into shadow, maybe try to get them on my tech team. So reach out to people. It never hurts to ask, whether it's at your church or uh, you know at a recording studio or another live venue, whatever it is, just go ask the sound guy, hey, what are you doing? How do you do what you do? And maybe could I watch you do what you do and learn from you? And as long as you're very respectful and uh, show a genuine interest in it, a lot of times they'll be really psyched about that. Another interesting thing about audio production is that if you're really good, you get noticed. And that's kind of a weird thing to say, but I've seen it come true over and over again. If people really put in the hard work and are good at what they do, they get noticed and they get opportunities. Uh, a great example of this, I've got a friend who uh, we grew up in churches together and he worked incredibly hard at becoming a great monitor engineer. And now he's the monitor engineer for Lauren Daigle. So, you know, stuff like that can happen and it does happen. I've seen it happen over and over again. Uh, so just work really hard, be really persistent, get to know people in the area who you look up to and who are doing what you want to do and just get to know them. Most of the time, they are so happy to go have a cup of coffee with you, just talk about what they do, how they got where they are. So I think that can be just as good as uh, a professional audio education uh, in getting connections and helping you network with people who will really take your career to where you want it to be. The biggest key, though, to me is being a self-motivated learner, a self-directed learner. And what I mean by that is that you're one of those people who just wants to know things. So during my time in audio engineering school, I would say of the knowledge that I gained, probably about 40% of it was from actually being in class and listening to lectures, doing assignments, all that kind of stuff. And the other 60% of it was because I just really wanted to learn. Uh, I would book studio time on my own late into the night and the early hours of the morning. Uh, I would go find local bands to record. I would go search out live venues and churches that would let me run sound for free. And that's how I learned the majority of what I learned. Now, being in audio engineering school made that pretty easy to do. Uh, that was kind of my whole life at the time. I didn't really have anything else I needed to do. So I could just you know go hang out at venues, go hang out at churches, do work for free, all that kind of stuff, uh, just until I started learning and becoming more proficient at my craft. But I think the same opportunity is there with the resources that are available online now. Um, everything from courses like ours to YouTube videos and networking with other sound engineers, there's just so much opportunity to learn. And so if you want to learn, you can do it. There's so many people like us who just love sharing what we do and have a passion for teaching other people about it. If you'd like to know more about audio engineering as a career, let us know about that. Uh, we'd love to have some guests on that maybe could talk more specifically about that. Uh, Matt and I are both tech directors at our respective churches, so uh, we've made careers out of it. It's definitely something that you can do if you want to. So please let us know at the Worship Sound Guy Students Facebook group, and we'd love to talk more about that.
Our third and final question of the episode comes from Alexis Hall, who asks, how do you get yourself to stop overthinking things? I've noticed I tend to overcomplicate things when sometimes simple is better. And how do you get yourself out of your own head, like doubts, frustrations, etc.? Mixes suffer when doubts and frustrations run high. Yes, they really do. Gosh, I've experienced that uh, at various points throughout my mixing career, and it's something that can be kind of hard to overcome. I think a lot of us as sound engineers, we're kind of naturally critical people. We like details, we like to pick things apart and listen to every little nuance of the mix. And when we do that, it can kind of be easy to tear ourselves down. And I think that's where the worry and the doubt and frustration, all that kind of comes into play. We pick apart our own mixes to the point where we find every little thing wrong with them. And what I've noticed on that, when I do that, and I, gosh, I, I still do that to this day, but when I tear my mixes apart, what I tend to find is, yeah, there's some stuff that I wish maybe I would have done better. If I listen back to a mix in the car, I'm like, oh man, I wish I you know, would have mixed differently. I wish I would have EQ'd or balanced something differently. But when I do that and get really nitpicky about it, I'll miss the 95% of the mix that was really good. It's so easy for us as humans to overlook stuff that's actually really good and just focus on what went wrong. And if we do that, it's super easy to get in our own heads and to be frustrated with it. And there's nothing that's less enjoyable than waking up super early on a Sunday morning, driving all the way to church, getting behind the mixer and just being frustrated. Nobody wants to do that. We all want to have fun. We all want to do ministry together. We want it to be really enjoyable. And if we're focused on the negative, that just can't happen. So we kind of need to take a minute to reframe. And uh, I like to do this through prayer. Uh, I've talked about that a little bit earlier in the episode that before I mix, I like to pray and uh, just take a moment or two to refocus my thoughts, um, you know, just the attention of my mind on God rather than on every little thing that might be going wrong in my mix. Even if there are things, it's okay. It's going to be all right. Now, for me at least, what gets a little bit harder is when stuff goes wrong that's out of our control. It's one thing if I don't quite EQ something the way I wanted to, and I'm like, man, I wish my snare hit a little harder. It's another thing if, let's say, a pack battery dies and the communicator can't talk in the middle of his message because his microphone just went dead and he's stuck up there on stage and I have to awkwardly run out on stage and get him a new battery or a new pack or hand him off to a handheld. That's the kind of stuff that, gosh, it's hard to deal with. It's hard to shake it. Uh, That's something that can kind of derail your whole morning, or at least I know it has for me. It's probably happened to you too. Um, And it's one of those things where in the moment, it just feels like everything is coming crashing down around you and that nothing is ever going to go right again. And uh, I think in that moment, it's important to realize that we're kind of having a fear response. And that's not something we talk about a lot, but the reality is we're not just upset that something has gone wrong. We're actually a little bit afraid. Uh, Our fear response is triggered by high emotion situations like that. Um, And our brain gets pumped full of chemicals and just seems, you know, like kind of time can stand still as something is going catastrophically wrong during service. Uh, And that's something that we have to learn how to work through. Because when it does happen, we have to know what to do, how to fix the situation, and how to come out the other side being okay with ourselves afterward. Psychology teaches us that there are really only three basic types 
types of fear. First, there's the fear of pain, which, uh, you know, unless someone's going to like punch us for not having a microphone in the right place at the right time, probably not so much a factor here. But the next one is the fear of being out of control. Now, this is something that clearly affects us a lot uh, when there's a situation happening on stage. Maybe we're, you know, at the back of the room at the soundboard, something's going wrong on stage, and we can't control that. That's just something that's happening. It's beyond anything that we can do anything about. So immediately our fear response is triggered and it makes it a lot harder to work through it logically and to actually do troubleshooting to solve the problem. But psychologists also say that one of the best ways to stop our fear response in its tracks is to name the fear. So when something crazy is happening on stage, like the guitarist has dropped his guitar and I don't know, a microphone is flying across the stage because somebody bumped into it and I am freaking out at the soundboard, the very first thing that I tell myself is, this is out of my control. That's why I'm freaking out like this. I can't do anything about it. It's out of my control. And just telling myself that makes it so much easier to handle the situation logically and efficiently and quickly. So just remember that when something is going catastrophically wrong and there's nothing you can do about it, it really is out of your control. And that's what's driving your fear. And if you can acknowledge that, it's so much easier to move past that initial fight or flight fear response. Now, the third type of fear comes into play after the danger has passed, and it's the fear of not being enough. And I know for me, this is the one that can be really crippling. This is the one that can just completely derail the rest of your service. You go, oh man, that thing happened. I can't believe that happened. I should have seen it coming. What am I doing? And then you start to doubt yourself. You wonder if you're even good enough to be volunteering in this position or to be paid for this position. You wonder if you're letting your team down, if your pastor thinks less of you because his mic suddenly died on stage. All these kind of thoughts that flood through our heads uh, are pretty devastating and they can really do some damage over time, especially if things like that keep happening and they aren't addressed. Eventually you'll feel worn down, you'll question your identity, you'll wonder what you're even doing trying to run sound. And I know that because I've been there and I've felt that. That's why it's so important to identify that type of fear, that fear of not being enough. Once you identify it, you can move past it and look back rationally and go, oh, my pastor doesn't suddenly hate me because his microphone died. Like that doesn't make any sense. That's a silly thing. And you can see that those fears were unfounded. Once you can start to treat your doubts and fears like that and to identify those two types of fears, the fear of being out of control and the fear of not being enough, and identify when they're happening and what's causing them, it's going to allow you to really get out of your own head and to move above your fears and kind of look down at it from a 30,000 foot view and see what you can learn from it and then also what just isn't worth holding on to that you can then let go of and have a better mix next week because that's what it's all about. Well, that's all the time we have for this very first episode of Ask Worship Sound Guy. I hope that you'll join us next time as we answer more of your questions. Uh, we'll have some guests on. It's going to be super fun. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe on whatever podcast platform you're listening on. And until next time, crank that bass. 
The Ask Worship Sound Guy podcast is written, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Johnny, right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, the music you heard during this episode was also written, produced, performed, and mixed by me. So if you like that, thank you very much. I'll be doing more in the future. So if you stick around to the end of the podcast, I'm going to tell you a secret just for listening much longer than you really had to. So uh, today is Sunday, May 10th, Mother's Day. And the secret is this, is that I showered for the first time in like five days today because it's Mother's Day and I wanted to smell nice for my mom. It's the middle of coronavirus quarantine right now and Let's be real. All I want to do is play Pokemon on my Nintendo Switch and record this podcast for you guys. And showering just doesn't fit in with that. But, you know, I did it for my mom. So if there's one lesson to be learned from all of this is that you need to smell nice for your mom. Okay. <laughs>